election whisperer. I am so excited about this episode. I mean, kind of in the, excited in the way that you feel when you're in line to go into the haunted house or a giant roller coaster that you're kind of terrified to try out for the first time. You know that you'll like it once you're in it, but talking about it or waiting for it to begin is kind of terrifying. And that's how I, I generally feel these last couple of weeks running um, you know, down this clock to get to January 20th at high noon when the powers of the presidency are going to be um, you know, excavated out of Donald Trump and put into Joe Biden. And, you know, until that moment happens, folks, I just, I'm not going to feel better. Like, I need that moment of transformation when Trump becomes nothing but pure symbolism to feel better. Because, frankly, the, the powers of the presidency are great. And our system, you know, it has done reasonably well with a direct assault against it. Um, much more direct than I think most people would have thought was uh, possible to manifest. Uh, but it's still, we're talking about parchment protections, and um, we need to get the, the powers of the presidency out of a man who clearly does not, um, you know, respect the Constitution, the rule of law, and has created a situation where he has uh, created doubt about the elections, um, you know, accuracy, fairness, um, and, um, you know, results, completely manufactured that doubt. Uh, by lying to people, and then uses the doubt that he manufactured as a justification to attack the election. It's a, you know, if you read any book on how dictators rise, how authoritarian regimes set in, it's a 101 uh, methodology for how uh, dictators do their game, and it is definitely, definitely disturbing. And and what we're seeing now is is a much more mainstream, um, you know, process. And I think Steve Schmidt this morning, you know, um, this is Sunday we're recording and you guys are listening on Tuesday, Steve Schmidt on his, uh, Sunday talk show appearance on Jonathan Capehart's new show on MSNBC was describing the Republican party now in two factions. And I think he's dead on. I think this is exactly how we should be thinking of the Republican party, um, at this point, which is two factions. One a uh, pro-authoritarian faction and one not. And, you know, this is not an insignificant-sized faction. We're talking about 140 and counting House Republicans now who are, you know, endorsing this idea that the swing state, you know, swing state election results are in um, contest and should be re-examined, right, by a, a Senate-created you know, inquisition, basically, that would be a total farce. I mean, these uh, elections have already been investigated much more than any election in recent history, um, verified by the courts. You know, the, the media likes to say there's no evidence of. That's because there this is a total fraud. Donald Trump made up the allegations of hundreds of thousands of fake votes. Uh, you, you could watch him do it in real time, as I've said before on this show and on uh, my Twitter feed. You literally watched him and Giuliani come up with that story through their press conferences in uh, November and December. And, you know, so it's not just that there's no evidence of. It is an intentional lie that they came up with to create doubt on Joe Biden's victory in an effort to gaslight America into thinking that Donald Trump can still be president. And we really need to be much stronger in that language because when you're when you don't do that, when you leave room for people to get confused, guess what? They get confused. And that's what uh, Trump and the Republican Party are really relying on is the, uh, uh, you know, uh, confusion that that can be sowed. Uh, when there's room for confusion. Uh, so, you know, we're looking at this pro-authoritarian faction that I think is looking at potentially the, the benefits of establishing a one-party state in America. And and to think it can happen here is to ignore every less, lesson that history has to confer upon us. Anybody that is well-read and has studied history can look back at multiple points, you know, um, of course, the most famous is the fall of Germany into Nazism. Uh, but there are many, many more stories, uh, great and small, but some are contemporaneous. And we can look at Hungary, you can look at Turkey, you can look at Poland. Um, if you haven't read it, you know, definitely want to read Twilight of Democracy by Anne Applebaum. 
to show, you know, when you have a, a big media system, uh, control of that, it's very easy to shift language, um, you know, who's in control of civil service organization and the media and very, very, very quietly slip into authoritarianism. So we are in quite a state. And because of that, as we move in to this next stage of, of electoral college confirmation, which should be something that none of us pay any attention to. In fact, you know, even a wonk like me had no idea, you know, of all these various little stops the Electoral College takes along its way to January 20th. Uh, some of the bigger ones, you know, state certification, sure, but, you know, this little vote in Congress is something that m some members of Congress have said they don't even remember making um, in previous uh, presidential elections. Now we know all of these intricacies because the GOP has been trying to leverage them to, um, you know, disrupt Biden's win. And so we're going to be coming into Wednesday into something the president is trying to organize as not only two hours in the House and the Senate now of floor debate, which will be just ridiculous. I mean, we're going to see uh, accusations of, of fraud and, and stolen elections, stop the steal, again reiterating this complete farcical gaslight. One can only hope Democrats show up for their own floor time prepared with the stats and the figures to tell the story of what actually happened on election night. You know, again, Biden's victory, especially in, in Pennsylvania and Michigan, robust hundreds of thousands of votes, you know, people need to be reminded of that uh, because that story is now, you know, a month and a half past and it's it's fading from the memory of voters and the new version that Donald Trump is, is painting is going to be the, the one that is more, um, you know, familiar to voters. So it's really important that Democrats redefine what happened on election night and the week after, retell that story if, the, if we're going to be using this time on the floor. Uh, properly. And, you know, Donald Trump is also trying to set up political theater. And that political theater is going to be taking place in the streets of D.C. And I think has potential to possibly, um, you know, blow up in his face. Now, I, I don't think that he's blind to that. I think he full well knows that it could get out of hand. And uh, by that, I mean that he's, you know, appealing to the most deplorable of his deplorable baskets and telling them, come to D.C. and, and stop the steal, you know, make a, a street protest. And um, I thought it would be a really great idea to bring on the show somebody who made a huge splash splash when his book came out last year. The book's title made a huge splash because the title is Dying of Whiteness. How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. And I know as soon as I saw that title, I was clicking on the book. I needed to know right away, what is this book about? And, um, you know, first off, I, I noted that it was coming not only from a sociologist, but also a physician, so that it was going to be an excellently researched book, that it was going to be empirically supported, uh, which, you know, not to take away from books that are qualitative, but it is always nice when you have that empirical data to go, um, you know, along with your thesis. Uh, but, you know, this idea, this concept that the author was putting forward, uh, and the author's name is Jonathan Metzl. He's at Vanderbilt University. His position there is director of the Department of Medicine, Health, and Society. Coming from a medical doctor and empirically supported, I knew this was going to be just terrific work, and it was. It just took the literary nonfiction world by storm. Um, you know, I think the book was, um, you know, everywhere that I, I could turn around, I could see it. And it really deserved that uh, type of, of interest because what it was doing, I mean, it really it kind of taps in a little bit to what Thomas Frank argued, uh, you know, a couple decades ago or, um, you know, maybe in the mid 2000s when the What's the Matter with Kansas came out and it, look at how voters were voting against their economic interest. Well, that's one thing, right? It's one thing to, to not understand tax policy and that trickle-down economics is actually, you know, the reason your rural community in, in uh, you know, Indiana, Ohio, and, and places like that are, are um, falling further and further behind the blue states is because 
your economic um, vote, you're voting for Republicans who continue to undermine those rural communities economically. That's one thing. But to to be voting for policies and politicians who are literally killing you, right, for their supporting policies and positions and issues and taking um, policies and positions and issues that are are literally causing you to die younger than your parents or, or, you know, causing your children to die from opioids and gun violence or suicide. Um, you know, this is, that's a whole different type of, of matter. I mean, this is uh, matters of life and death are always more salient, obviously than economic issues. And it's something that people can understand at a level that's uh, much different. So, um, yeah, so I am so excited to have, um, do, do you go by Dr. Metzl? Doctor. Sure. That's fine. Yeah. Doctor, doctor. Yeah. Cause he's an actual doctor. He's not <laughs> one of us fakies that, <laughs> you know, as Rachel Maddow says, I'm a doctor, but not that kind of doctor. She used to say that on her radio show anyway, way back in the days before she became the Rachel Maddow. Right. Um, but yeah, Dr. Metzl here, I'm not going to uh, mutilate his thesis. I want him to kind of walk us through I know it was a project that he spent um, half a decade on that it involved him traveling extensively, really immersing himself into America's heartland, getting to know these voters that, you know, the New York Times erroneously argues we don't pay enough attention to. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, tell us about the thesis that that grievance politics, white racial resentment politics is actually causing white America to, um, to, to die. Well, thank you very much. It's great. Uh, it's great to be here. And thank you for that lovely introduction. And I think we're all kind of figuring this all out now. I mean, there, there's a, there's a continued need, I think right now in, in, in our kind of political arena to say, well, certainly when people are faced with fill in the blank, they're going to come to their senses, right? They're going to recognize, oh, well, we have this anti-mask politics, but we're, but we're, you know, the minute we see how bad the coronavirus is, people are going to become maskers, or they're going to believe this, believe that when their life is on the line, you know, and, and there's this sense, I think, particularly among um, a lot of liberal thinkers that conservative ideas are, are really just a front for something else, and people are going to come to their senses. And I've been studying this for quite a while now. And and really what I do in my research is I try to disprove that notion, that notion that basically there's some kind of waking up point and not really taking this politics for what people tell us it is, which is their identity. And it's, and it's not going to change. And in fact, it gets more urgent, the more dire the situation becomes. I, I found this out the first time when I first started researching the book in, in 2011, 2012, I was doing research on the Affordable Care Act in Tennessee, and I was interviewing particularly white, uh, white, uh, very low income uh, men who really were really, really, really medically sick. I was interviewing men who had liver failure, kidney failure, uh, COPD, all these pretty serious problems. And al along the way came this thing called the Affordable Care Act that would have offered them um, not only access to more and better physicians, but also help economically because a lot of these men were not just sick, they were going bankrupt because they couldn't afford medications or they couldn't afford their medical bills. And here comes the Affordable Care Act. And I think a lot of people uh, you know, on the left erroneously thought, well, the minute people see how much the Affordable Care Act is going to help them, or there was this argument, the minute people get used to seeing the benefit of a social program, it's hard to get it away from them, but that didn't take account for really what I was finding in my research, which was that um, there was a counter narrative on the right, which was this Affordable Care Act is just going to go to benefiting undocumented immigrants, undeserving minorities. They're going to game the system. They're going to take from you, take out of your pocket. And and really that drove people um, to, to reject their own health care. I think really the moment, the crystallizing moment of the book for me was when I was interviewing a man who had liver failure, um, who was literally on death's doorstep. And I said, you know, sir, you, you could actually sign up for the ACA and it, it would help you. And he said, and I quote, I'm not signing up for a program that's going to benefit Mexicans or welfare queens, uh, unquote. This idea that basically um, this program could help me, 
but I'd rather die. He, he literally told me I'd rather die. And he did pass away over the course of the research rather than sign up for this, for this program. And so part of the idea of dying of whiteness is there's something going on here. This idea of not only of hierarchy, of privilege, but also of, you know, not doing anything that would benefit the other side, the undeserving black and brown people, things like that, that people literally were going to their death um, and on their deathbed. And as I saw dying um, to uphold. And so in a way that was a small, a small, you know, terrifying warm up for what's just become more and more clear, I think. I mean, I think the pandemic has been, unfortunately, a massive wake up call where people are thinking like, oh, the minute you see what's happening. But I have friends who are physicians who who see people who are dying of COVID and won't <laughs> won't <laughs> won't admit it's COVID. Um, and, and so I think that's part of the story is just the power of that ideology that the minute you tell working class white voters, minorities are going to game the system. They're going to take away something that does, that's meant for you. Um, there's really no, there's no end. It's a, it's a powerful narrative. And so you have to counteract that narrative, not try to reason people into saying, well, look, you know, here's the data on mask wearing and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's extraordinary, right? That even if you're telling them this will help you too, right? Like, okay, let's say minorities are going to benefit, but it's going to help you not die of this liver disease, you know, that that's not, it's still not a persuasive argument, you know, that to me is the surprising part. I think, you know, a lot of it is the myth, right? This idea that the, the benefits will go disproportionately to minorities or only to minorities. Like, if, all right, so, you know, you're, you're, you can fix that a little bit with information or, you know, as he gets progressively ill, here's this opportunity to get on the ACA. Um, but even when presented with the corrective, yes, but you too, that's still not a persuasive argument. They, you know, that this gentleman, you know, in, that you highlight in particular was presented with the solution and said, you know, I'm not doing it because they're going to get it too, you know? And, and I think that's, I think that's what people misread about, you know, the quote unquote authoritarian mindset. It's not just like you're blindly following like a zombie. I mean, that's part of it. Um, but the, but the other part is, um, that, that the narrative of this authoritarianism tells you that they're, you're going to destroy your enemies and come out, you know, victorious and stuff like that. So they're not just following the leader. They're following this fantasy that, um, that, that, um, you know, that our side's going to win and we're going to destroy the libs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I know your research uh, popped right back into my brain and to many other people's brains as the um, denialism started to kick in for COVID, which, of course, was highly conditioned on Trump. Um, if you take Donald Trump away and put in another Republican leader, uh, let's say Jeb Bush was in charge when coronavirus came and Jeb Bush, no person running for re-election would ever choose the um, the uh, response package that Don, no person running for re-election or not, no, no rational, sane person would have chosen the response package that Donald Trump did, which is why, you know, when you look at the world, uh, there's 20 ways that you could deal with the pandemic of a menu of choices and everybody else is choosing from the right side of the menu and Donald Trump is the only human <laughs> being, right? He's the only human being well, that chooses the left menu, right? Him and the well, guy I mean, they're, in Brazil, right? <laughs> I mean, there, there's plenty of conditioning for what this is, which is zero-sum thinking, right? In other words, if you have a pandemic where everybody's at risk of the coronavirus because we're human and coronavirus likes to eat humans, um, then, then the, the the rational response is to join together. Like, how can we join forces and create public health infrastructure? Um, but people who are conditioned to say you can't you can't cooperate, um, and then somebody comes along who, who says this is a moment to not cooperate. So it's kind of a perfect storm of like three three pathogens at one time. Oh my gosh, yes, and and Trump himself a pathogen. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah, definitely. I. You know, it's astounding, but it's not, right? I mean, it. you couldn't think of a worse crisis to give this man. And many of us who had warned of his election, you know, being, um, you know, let's stop talking about this guy in conventional political terms because 
the election of someone like this to the American presidency, it's, it's not, he's not some Republican. He's, he's so abnormal that it would be, uh, dangerous to the system. He, you know, da, 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 da. This would be, this was like the worst case, right? Like some crisis will come that is so big and, and, and requires so much of the American presidency that, you know, it, it will fall on, on, on a timeline that is this guy. So it's going to be the worst possible outcome. And literally, you know, here we are coming out of the first year of the pandemic and you couldn't have asked for a, a worse possible thing to have occurred because, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that we'd probably be somewhere sub sub a hundred thousand deaths with anybody else in the helm you know, of that presidency than Donald Trump, right? Um, because, again, nobody would choose the options that he chose to deal with the... I mean, who? no president would say, especially in election year, I'm going to um, allow all of my executive authority, I'm just going to um, I'm going to give that out to these governors and, and basically put my re-election hopes, you know, up to their, you know, whether they do this well or not, right? I mean, that, just doing that is such a risky... Thing. Most people knowing they're going to be running for re-election would be risk adverse and wanting to control as much of the response as possible so that they could control the conditions of their own re-election, right? Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, um, so as this as this virus sweeps in, we start to see your thesis back in action, right? And your phone starts ringing. I'm sure, right? Well, it's it's just you know the the hard part is like it's not. Um... You know, it's just like it takes it takes. I mean, the one thing that I learned in my research and I, I should say that, you know, I, I started with that that narrative of the Affordable Care Act. And I, I traced that through. I traced it through Tennessee and Kentucky, people who were who who were going bankrupt and dying. And all they had to do was vote for politicians who would have expanded Medicaid. And in Tennessee, they didn't, even though they saw the effects. And it was even more terrifying in Kentucky because uh, Kentucky people did start uh, having longer life expectancies, going to the doctor, having you know less medical bankruptcy, and then they turned around for a period and elected a governor who ran on the platform. I'm going to take away your health care, um, and, and and so really the power of that narrative, the power of that narrative that um, that is not based in betterment for yourself, but is based in a kind of anti-government, um, anti-immigrant pro-gun kind of politics that became like people's identities in ways that were incredibly powerful. And, and I think the most important part about that, this is just studying the Affordable Care Act, is the more desperate people got, the more sick they got, the more bankrupt they got, the more ideological they got. So it wasn't like they said, oh, gosh, I have a, a nodule on my liver and I, I'm bankrupt and I'm going to become a Democrat. That, it was the exact opposite. The more desperate they got, because of their own elected officials, the more likely they were, I found, to to follow these ideologies because it, it was like hanging on to their their religion. It would be it became who they were. And so I took that story, I, I followed in different ways through Missouri. I tell the story of when guns came to Missouri, what happened when more and more and more guns flooded into the state. A kind of different story. Um, but a story about, again, kind of it just defied logic, a per particular kind of logic. Like, sir, why do you have 45 AR-15s? Um, and um, and really this NRA narrative that you need more guns. And, and I would talk to people who had guns in their headboard of their bed, guns on their night table. And all these tragic, horrible things were happening, not because they were getting robbed, which is what they kept telling me, but because of all this horrible stuff that was happening when they had so many guns lying around their house houses. But, um, but, but again, this logic, um, of, well, this is what I need to do to protect what's, what's mine, what's ours against them. Um, and so there was this disconnect, even among people, I was interviewing people who tragically had lost family members to gun suicide or accidental shooting in their own house. And, and the same kind of thing, they became more gut pro gun, um, and I, you know, I'm from Missouri. I live in Tennessee. It's not like I have some, I don't, I'm not going around taking away anybody's gun or anything. I grew up, you know, around guns. Um, but, but I think that this idea of, uh, just totally unfettered gun access because of, as people would tell me, I might get carjacked, you know, all these black people are going to come get me. Um, 
and so and so it just it just defied logic of you know why why can't we have a gun safe here or something like that and so that was part of it and then the last part I I look at Kansas yeah well, and, well before and, we move on to that yeah, let's talk yeah, a little sure. bit about that gun thesis because it doesn't get quite as much oxygen I think in a lot of the media coverage that mm-hmm. you've done so far as the ACA but I think it was really compelling right and you know it I mean number one it is a product of a strategic effort by the Republican Party and the NRA and these groups to turn guns as an issue into a religion right so you, as you're talking about it the way people talk about guns in their lives it is a religion right they it's a dog it becomes a dogmatic relationship with firearms and you know to have 45 ar-15s to have guns on your headboard and you know four on the kitchen in the kitchen the way and the reverence as you said um you know families that would suffer a suicide you know they they have these weapons ostensibly in their home to protect their families their children are using them to shoot themselves from suicide or shooting themselves accidentally because the guns are, are not even stored in safes they're not stored in um you know without the ammo inside of them and that's because there's no laws right there's no you can't write a law at all that compels parents to withhold firearms or or store them in ways that will keep children safe so many 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 more children die every year from the uh, accidental shooting deaths than would ever die from home invasion robbery, right? And, um, you know, but but uh, you, as you just pointed out, found that people would actually become more defensive about the Second Amendment because they knew that people wanted to, I don't want to say exploit, but use the death, the, the death of their child, the suicide of their child, to highlight why having the gun in the home had the inverse, you know, um, you know, effect. It didn't make them safer. It caused them to lose their child. So they would, in you know, they would um, and, and maybe per- feel compelled to de- be defense defensive, right? Um, but well, yeah. you know, I mean, it's it's funny because um, if you look back twenty years ago in Pew opinion polls, you know, people own guns. We've got a history of gun ownership in this country. Um, but if you ask people why you own guns, um, like 80% of the people would say for hunting, um, you know, family tradition. And I think it was like 14% in the eighties would say protect from other people. Cause you know, we have the police. Um, and, and, and now, you know, 2018, it's like 80% protect yourself from other people. So that transition, that's, that's the NRA right there. It's an articulated um, transition, right? Yeah. And, and it's a, a very conscious transition because the minute, the minute the, the, that you need a gun to protect yourself, not just against any other person, it's not like to protect yourself against like a crash test dummy. It's, it's to protect yourself against, as, as Wayne LaPierre put it, you know, the gangbanger, the carjacker, the, the racial other. And so the minute that became part of the identity, um, and there was a, another narrative that was happening, which is, of course, people were seeing devastation in their own communities because it's not that there were guns. There were always guns, but there were not this <laughs> this many guns. And so or this violence, type or this yeah, type. Or this type. Yep. Yeah, or this type. Partner violence skyrocketed, um, gun suicide far and away leading cause of death. Um, but because this thing was, first of all, coded as being a defense of, of a racial position and uh, number one. And number two is that they hid all the data. <laughs> so there wasn't any information. So you dis- you discredit science. The NRA has a three-decade-long ban on research on guns. Um, and so that playbook probably sounds familiar because that's the coronavirus playbook. Right? No doubt. And, um, and people are genuinely surprised. I always try to remind, anytime I, t- I talk, um, do an event on this topic, I always try to remind people, Congress passed a law that prohibited the CDC from doing research, right? Isn't there a congressional ban on CDC funded research on guns? Isn't that how yeah. that if people if people want to know that history, I would you know it's I take I talk about it at length in the book because it's it was a writer to the federal budget budget um in the mid-1990s that um that followed an argument in two excellent AMA written papers that basically found that a gun in a home is increases the risk of a shooting in a home and a gun in a home increases the risk of a suicide in a home. And it was, they were excellent papers. Um, 
And also, it's hard to have a shooting in a home if there's no gun in the home. And so, it, it, it whatever. But but they kind of use this. And for me, this honestly was this for me was the original sin. I mean, the, the GOP's turn to where we are now started with this particular ban. Number one, because it was clearly wrong and illogical. Number two, it was racist. Number three, it was serving a corporate interest over the interest of, of its base. And number four, people went along with it, <laughs> you know? And so, and so for me, that was, that was the, that was the original sin, honestly, was, um, was, oh gosh, we can get away with this. It makes tons of money for us. Our base actually respects us more because we're playing racial politics and our base is dying and they support us even more. And so in a way, um, you know, people who are in disbelief and they want people to look at the coronavirus data right now, like look at the data, da, 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 da. But, but we've already fought the data argument. We fought it over guns and we lost. And so, and so in a way you just can't put that, you can't put that back in the bottle because the, 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 the GOP is in a way following this, <laughs> they're following this gun narrative of discredit the science, discredit the research. Um, if your base is dying, turn it on its head and blame it on somebody else and play racism. And, and that that's the card. And so now that Mitch McConnell might all of a sudden feel like, holy crap, what have I done? Which I'm sure he doesn't. But I'm saying, you know, the sin wasn't two months ago. The sin was 94, 96. Oh, when, no, it's when... an ongoing intentional yeah. sin. Like, I, that's what I'm trying to get people to understand. It's like, you know, the, the fact that the Republican base has lost its mind and gone Frankenstein is is not some accident. It's the, you know, it's 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 the... Like the end end result of 20 years of psychological warfare upon it from the media system, from the campaign system of the Republican Party, they Frankensteined their own base and then lost control of it. Now it's eating them and controls them, right? And like Mitch McConnell is starting to realize what a problem this is because he, you know, he called a conference call for his Senate to tell Josh Hawley not to do this you know anti-democratic coup thing on the floor and josh hawley just didn't come to the call so mitch yeah. mcconnell starts this callers you know 50 whatever republican senators on the call and he's doing you know he does his whole speech about it's you know you know you can't egregious to put our colleagues into a position where they have to either support trump or support democracy da 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 a very eloquent speech hawley's not even on the phone Okay, because McConnell doesn't rule the Senate anymore, right? Trump does, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, he doesn't he doesn't even show up for the call. And now there's twelve of them, and and Democrats have this constant blinder. They think, oh, the rules are on my side, the law is on my side, and decency is on my side, so everything's fine. Okay, well, you know what? The rules are are parchment enforced as is, is the rule of law. And the Republican Party has no decency left, right? So these are very thin defenses compared to, you know, when you look at how societies fall, like the thing that you need the most is a party with enough power to do it and the conviction to want to. And we have that in place now, right? So that's the perfect transition to kind of talk about your thesis, this willingness to die for whiteness, right? For, you know, the, the Republican Party is, is you know, very um, overtly and explicitly defending the white status quo. And my research talks about, you know, what's driving polarization in the United States, hyper-partisanship and polarization. Ultimately, and there's many mechanisms of it, you know, media and all of that, but what's making it happen is the collapse of white male dominance. And white men have dominated society since it emerged. And now that's being challenged globally and it's being challenged in the U.S. And we are seeing the, uh, a final struggle to perhaps stave that off. I mean, what staves that off? The end of democracy, right? So we are now seeing Trump, you know, based basically appealing to his Republican compatriots, just don't honor the election results. I mean, people can can say, you know what, the electoral college is, is fixed in, the votes are there. We have been very, very lucky that the margins were robust in Michigan and Pennsylvania, 
and we picked up uh, Arizona and Georgia to give a buffer because if these if this was a tight election, I don't know that we would still have a democracy today. Well, then the other thing the other people have to realize is even with all that, if the GOP just controlled the House right now, this would be a different different issue also. So it so in other words, like we, we lucked out this time. We <laughs> really did. We lucked out this we're, time. we're like and, dodging a bullet, right? Like a very. But my point is, like we haven't dodged it yet, and until January twentieth, it's not dodged. People, you know, we have good, good hopes that it's going to get dodged. But Trump is imploring his people to show up in D.C., and they already have a propensity. Um, I don't know if you've heard of of um, lethal mass partisanship or the research that looks at like the um, willingness for. In negative partisanship and a lot of the stuff that we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, you know, like the motivations of what you're talking about is grounded in negative partisanship. A willingness to say, you know what, even though I could get my liver my liver fixed by giving, you know, uh, health care by passing this ACA thing, uh uh-uh. uh, I want I don't want to help these people enough that I my negative emotions to them override my positive feelings for me. <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. negative partisanship, but 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 there's this concept called lethal mass partisanship, which is looking at, and this comes from two really great political scientists that were on the pad, pod last week, Liliana Mason and Nathan Calmo. And they're looking at, like, is it increasing the tolerance of people to inflict bodily harm on the opposition party, right? And, you know, when I was thinking about you coming on the show, coming in to the event that, you know, people will be listening to this on Tuesday. It's election night in Georgia. Emotions are going to be coming extremely high. We're going to have a, a live event for people on um, uh, tonight, on Tuesday night. It's from 6 to 7. We're going to do a Q&A about this topic and about, you know, the event tonight, the election tonight, the um, electoral college certification shit show tomorrow and uh, be talking about dying of whiteness and, and what Trump is expecting this rally of NDC to produce. But, but you know, with these, with all of this stuff coming together and what you have learned about the Republican base and their commitment to white grievance politics, white racial resentment, what are you thinking? Like, what are you thinking we're going to see in D.C.? Well, I, I think, you know, I, again, I think the key point here, again, we're not talking about all Republicans. We're not talking about all white people. Um, but I would say that this particular narrative, there's a kind of common liberal assumption that when it's people's own self-interest, that's where they draw the line. But I, I think in, in a way, <laughs> there's no bottom because you're not talking about the self-interest that, a, you know, that a, a kind of rational you know, I want my own health. I want my own health care. I want my own prosperity, things like that. Um, the minute it is, I only have this one thing, which is my whiteness and somebody's coming to take away from me, or there's only so much this and somebody's going to get it instead of me. If that's the narrative, um, there really is no, the, the, people will literally throw themselves on the train tracks um, for, for that narrative. Right. And so in a way, I think that part of the issue is dehumanizing their side, as you said, I think part of it, again, is that there is a logic to this, but the logic is um, is um, is profoundly, profoundly um, kind of a zero sum, either I win or I die kind of politics. And and when people are feeling that way, um, it's not like they're going to say, oh, yeah, there's enough for everybody or something like that, which is what you would think. Right. So um, I, I don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday, honestly. I mean, obviously, people listen to this and then we'll we'll talk again on Tuesday and and we'll, and we'll figure it out. Um, you know, I, I hope that this is a moment where we, um, that we, that we find, um, you know, we kind of face our demons and, and turn it around. I mean, that would be my hope. Um, but I, but I have to say that turning it around is not just what people think. It's not just like, let's restore the faith in the democratic institutions. That's really important. Let's restore the democratic institutions. That's super, super important. Um, I would do a lot of interviews, um, in my research. And at the end of every interview, I'd ask people, um, you know, so what would it take for you to vote for someone other than other than Trump? You know, here's the guy who is taking away your your own health care. Um, and 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 nobody ever told me, oh, it's somebody who's going to give me a better school for my kid or 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 better health care. Everybody told me if you find somebody tougher and meaner than Trump, I'll vote for that person. And so the answer was always find somebody tough. 
uh, find somebody, somebody told me, find somebody nasty enough that he gives Trump a nickname and it sticks. <laughs> I always, I always like that answer. And so in a way, it, it's so funny because the Democrats, you know, they're going to be pluralistic. They're going to be olive branchy, all these kind of things. But right now, the Democrats kind of have to be hard asses in a way that um, in a way that they that that is very counterintuitive in a way. So it's not just building um building institutions, it really is being much more forceful than the Democrats have been in the past in terms of um, countering this narrative. Because I think right now in a kind of authoritarian moment, people are going to respond to direction. They're not going to respond to, you know, tell me your feelings, Jim, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, and so part of the issue is, as we see what happens, it's not, again, the, the trick is, say that there's, who knows, say that there's widespread violence on Tuesday. Um, say that we feel horror. Um, Wednesday, Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, Wednesday. Sorry. Um, um, the 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 traditional ploy has been, look, look how bad that is. Just like it's like, look, look how bad Trump is. But people aren't gonna be like, oh yeah, you're right. Look how how bad it is. That's not the point. The point is, you need to fill the vacuum right now. Um, with um with 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 a kind of firmness that the Democrats have not shown before. But I really think that that. That's what that's what turns this around is is kind of a, a truth and reconciliation and and in a way that that, that 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 really the Democrats have not done in a long time. I've been thinking the exact same. The kind of you know the Joe Biden that America actually needs right now is Scranton Joe, right? The guy yeah. that grew up in a white working class neighborhood that's scrappy, right? That you know needs to come out and be working class tough and. Instead, he's going for this diplomatic, you know, hey, if we talk about it at all and then we acknowledge this anti-democratic coup bit at all, we're giving more, we're giving it more um, credence than it deserves and more legitimacy than it deserves. Well, buddy, you got 140 House Republicans now and a dozen senators. And you want to know why? There's no downside, all up for them. Why not? Why wouldn't you come out and do it when there's all upside and no downside? The last... Uh, election this 2020 fall showed them McConnell and, and the and the Republicans at least at least uh, you know, unless my super PAC is, is is successful beyond my wildest dreams that there is no penalty electorally to you know the things that they have been doing because no, the guys they, who are vulnerable yeah, are the nice guys no shit because they they violated every fucking principle that you would think you would need to adhere to to be viable for a general election. And yet they they cleaned it up in the middle of the electorate, right? I mean, not in the middle. They technically didn't win that way. They won based on turnout, okay? So like, you know, if you follow my research, you understand how they won. But at the end of the day, this concept of, oh, there's a medium voter and people who, you know, if a party diverts from the median and they're not doing good at government, they're going to get, all of that is bullshit. Look at the fucking Republican Party. Look what it is doing, you know? Just look right now. You can, you can quantify it right now, which is, Who's doing a better job of fundraising this week? Josh Hawley, um, who said, "Who said I'm standing up for anti-democracy," um, or Mitch McConnell, who says, "I am restoring the institution." <laughs> you know, like you know, what I mean, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. And so, in a way, in a way, you 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 know, the way to make that, the, the way to turn that is 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 to be, as you say, you know. You you need you need to fight it with. That's a, with exactly a, right. You know, and so you know. Yeah. In the face of, of a void, of a, of a, a void where no fighter exists, I mean, you know, the Lincoln Project is there. You know, Steve Schmidt, to me, is, is one of the best articulators of the mm -hmm. fight. But at the end of the day, these, you know, I, I'm, I, and I'm a senior advisor, as always, I try to disclose that on the Lincoln Project, and I'm a, um, a big fan of them. But they are, they're all former Republicans, so they aren't, they aren't all from the left. They don't believe in liberalism, like politics, they aren't into liberal politi politics, and um, you know, so it has to be somebody from the left that's you know believes liberal policies are better for America that's articulating this, and you know that's why I was like, you know, I'm just gonna build a super PAC and start getting out there and doing it myself because we can't we can't just be. We can't be silent in the face of a of the effort to. I mean, what you know, at the end of the day, half of the Republican Party's like, you know what? We just we should do invalidate the presidential election. I mean, that's and, and, that's crazy. 
Yeah. And, and again, like, you know, it, it, I certainly agree that we should, you know, bolster our democratic institutions. But if that's all we do, and we don't actually counter this exact narrative, um, then then that bolstering is not going to work. And and so in a way, um, you know, there, there needs to be kind of a toughness to the kind of democratic agenda that there that 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 is something that people are finding and 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 we're not we're not there yet but hopefully we get there pretty quickly i do have hope though because there there has been a confluent like a a confluent i just make up words all the time because i I taught myself to read when i was a kid and it's just never gotten better since then (laughs) that was what i understood you yeah Yeah. i was always really um very gentle on george w bush for his mutilation of the english language because it's a a skill we we share um but anyway yeah no i yeah i just think there are there are a a I think we have the tools laying around, right? The tools are there for us to combat this, but someone's going to pick them up and start organizing them and putting them to use, right? And, you know, it's to do, to me today, I could I could tell from an interview that Connie Schultz did. She's um um senator for um uh, Sherrod Brown's wife that the, it's an intentional strategy from Biden's world not to talk about this democratic coup. And I'm like, you guys should be out there forcefully hitting back at this because it's not some freak, like, you know, blurb. This is a full court press by the Republican Party now to invalidate his election. And if you don't fill that space with something, it gets filled for you. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, in a way, I, I wrote my book as a, as a warning, right? Because what I saw, I mean, the logic, that same logic, track it back to 2011, 2012, when I'm doing my research for the, for the ACA part, it's like, who doesn't want healthcare? If you give, if, who doesn't want healthcare? If you give people free healthcare, um, they're going to accept it. There's no way that people are going to counter giving free healthcare, but it turns out that if you, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't put in place the counter narrative, that's going to, that's going to counter this, uh, this kind of, um, endangered white supremacy narrative, if you don't join it with that, then you can give people all the healthcare, you know, go to their house with a team of doctors and it's, it's still not going to work. And so, and so in a way, the, 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 the flaw of the ACA rollout was not the plan. I mean, actually I've studied the ACA very closely. Um, if it would have been let to do what it was supposed to do 20 years from now, the ACA would be the most fantastic piece of legislation ever, ever made because it would have been continually improved. We would have had a public option. Um, but the ACA did no defense of itself other than appealing to people's common sense. That was the only the only thing. And, and and so it was the same kind of thing that Biden's doing now, which is that when people see the rule of law and stuff like that, but actually, no, you need you need a counter narrative. And there are counter narratives that you could do. I mean, there are there are straightforward ones. There are I mean, there are you know, you could you could manipulate that. I mean, you could do manipulative ones. You could say there's only so much healthcare to go around and either you get it or your neighbor gets no it. No doubt. You could. You know? Yes, that's yeah. true. So, yeah. so I'm saying like there, there are different ways, but I'm saying you need a strategy for addressing this in a way that's going to win it for your side or, or just the straight up common sense thing is going to lose. Um, not, not because people are evil. I mean, some people are evil. Some people are not evil. I didn't have an, I didn't have a, an evolimeter when I was doing my research. Um, but, but I, but I will say that, 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 that people are predictable, right? And when, 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 when they feel the pull of austerity, when they feel the pull of, um, kind of this existential fear that, that if whiteness is the one thing you're holding on by, um, and somebody's going to take that away from you, well, no, they're not going to take that away from me. So it's, it's predictable, right? But if you don't have a counter for that narrative, then no policy is going to matter. You need a counter for that narrative. And 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 again, I've I've been trying just in my own private time here to I'm kind of cooking up some counter narratives for healthcare that I if anybody ever wants to listen to me <laughs> that I think would work. Um, well, you know who will. Yeah. <laughs> I will. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> just so happens I'm building up an infrastructure that will be capable of amplifying messaging like that. God willing, you know, here in the near future, because yeah, if if we don't start to do that, and I think right quickly, <laughs> yeah. because we we've really like you know getting Biden sworn in on Jan twenty will buy us time, but it is not a solution, right? It is we are. And think about yeah, I, I mean, I can't. I please enlist me because think about how many times we have 
lost that narrative. It's not just healthcare, right? I mean, it's everything. Um, yeah. With complete respect to my colleagues who I work with, and I'm part of this movement, but the gun violence prevention movement has missed this narrative because they thought when they said, look how many people are dying from gun violence, that would be enough to appeal to people's common sense to get them to the table. But it turns out there was no counter narrative to the other side that was constructing guns as symbols of white supremacy. And so until you have a, until you have a counter narrative for that, um, just trying to guilt trip people by showing them how many people are dying of gun violence, which is you know, catastrophic, 40,000 people. Yeah, but um, it only works with people who have a certain ideology and predisposition, yeah. dude. Yeah, and that's yeah. not the people we need to, to hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's the same thing with, with yeah. the pandemic. I mean, you can just say it on down, but there's no counter strategy for this point. Then just appealing to people to quote unquote wake up is, is gonna, I mean, we're seeing now how much that is. Yeah, no, you're going to be excited and I'm happy to tell you and, and, and the people listening to this. I mean, that's the kind of shit that we're, we're going to be looking to do with this pack and, uh, we'll be happy to have you on board. Yeah. Please. Yep. Yeah. So we'll wrap it off of that then. And, uh, yeah, good. That, that allows us to end on a, on a feeling of hope. <laughs> yeah. No, please. I mean, cause I, it's just surprising to me. Nobody gets this. So no doubt. Uh, no, I think yeah. people do. It's just, there's this, you know, there's this, there's a, there is a, um, there is a group of people that are like, they are the, the in people who are doing the things. And then there's just this outside group. And it's very like when, when I emerged, like the never Trump people, my phone rang right away. They're like, oh, you've got this theory and you've got this new model. Like, let's see it. Show us what it, who it is. Like, you know, they were like, you know, but my phone never on the other side you know yeah. so like we you know it's just we got to build it i think please just, please yeah. no help let me help yeah so all right well thanks all right for thank you on the show it's I my think honor people are gonna love this conversation and and uh i'm excited about tuesday cool night tonight for people who are listening <laughs> <laughs> six o'clock be there or be square and uh we're looking forward to that for paid subscribers still trying to get paid subscriber status you can just log in and uh, switch your subscriber status to paid and you'll be there. Okay. All right. Goodbye.